Good morning, everyone. My name is Austin Smith, and this is Poets Table, a show where I share with you one of my favorite poets uh, in the hopes that they might become one of your favorite poets as well. I've tried to feature Midwestern poets, um, though not all the poets I've shared are from the Midwest. Um, I think the the majority have been, and that's true today as well. I'm going to be sharing with you the work of a, a great Midwestern poet named Robert Bly, B-L-Y. Robert Bly uh, was born in Minnesota. He spent his whole life in Minnesota um, living on a farm uh, out towards where he grew up in the town of Madison, Minnesota. But he, uh, at the end of his life, was living in Minneapolis. He just passed away a year or so ago, and he was a very, very important figure in American poetry and really in American culture. Um, He's, uh, he was kind of a founder, or he was a founder of what's been called the men's movement. And um, he wrote a very uh, important book called Iron John, um, which has a lot to do with myth and um, archetype and identity uh, and masculinity. And he started uh, what's called the Great Mother Conference, um, which is really uh, kind of like a, a storytelling slash myth uh, slash kind of vision quest kind of gathering. Um, so he was in this milieu of, uh, of writers who are really interested in mythology and, um, spiritual life. And he also was very, very important in American poetry, particularly in the sixties and seventies in that he started to translate a lot of poets from other languages and bringing their work over into English. Um, so he translated poets like Pablo Neruda, Federico Garcia Lorca. Um, he was very, very important in translating uh, a wonderful Swedish poet named Tomas Tranströmer, who um, actually just won the Nobel Prize uh, about a decade ago, um, also no longer living, but um, Bly kind of introduced Tranströmer to, to American readers. And personally, he is a poet who is very important to me because when I was growing up, I, I really resonated with Robert Bly's poems. Even as a, a, a young boy, I remember reading um, his poems. They were very simple, very familiar, um, being that they're men, mainly about the Midwest um, or Midwestern imagery. And I just felt a deep familiarity and comfort with his work from the time that I was very young. And I had the opportunity maybe a decade ago or so to meet Robert Bly. He was giving a reading in Chicago, and uh, I went up to him afterwards. I got up the courage to introduce myself to him. And um, he could be a kind of uh, not unfriendly but intimidating presence. Um, he's He was very famous for his readings. He would oftentimes invite musicians to join him. Um, I remember that particular reading. He had some Persian musicians with him playing very strange instruments. I don't remember what they were while he was reading his poems. So he was sort of like a um, very, very much a mystic, I guess you could say. And uh, I remember, you know, one thing about his reading style is that he would read a poem of his and um, sometimes pause in the middle of the poem and reflect upon a certain line or image. So he would sort of interrupt himself in the reading of the poem and say, isn't that an interesting line or isn't that an interesting image? And sometimes even repeat it 
which was very strange. I don't think I've ever seen a poet comment on their own work as much as he did. I guess you could see that as being maybe a little pretentious, but also I, the way I see it is he felt a certain remove from his work and he could see his work from a, a certain distance and therefore remark upon it and kind of be a little bit um, curious about it, you know, and say, hey, isn't that interesting that I wrote that or that um, this line came to me? And, and uh, it was, I think, actually very sweet the way that he interacted with his own work, though it was off-putting for some people, I know. Anyway, I did meet him after that reading and um, gave him my address, and he wrote me a, a really, well, I think it was a nice note, but I couldn't really make out his handwriting. And so I don't know precisely what he said. Uh, he either said, it's great to be in touch with you and we should continue corresponding or please leave me alone. But I don't remember um, what happened after that. I think I tried to write him back and maybe he didn't write me back, but it was a nice little exchange with a poet that I greatly admire. Um, and again, he passed away about a year or two ago. Um, and it was a big, it was a big loss uh, for American poetry when he passed away. Um, so again, I'm talking about the poet Robert Bly um, associated mostly with Minnesota and in the Midwest generally. And I'm going to talk now about a couple of his poems. And uh, the first poem that I'm going to read is called Three Kinds of Pleasures. And it's a, it's a poem that's very um, characteristic of Bly. He, he liked to break his poems down into sections and this poem, again called Three Kinds of Pleasures, is broken into three sections, appropriately. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what effect this breaking a poem into sections has, uh, because I think it's a really interesting um, trait of Bly's. So again, Three Kinds of Pleasures by Robert Bly. One, sometimes riding in a car in Wisconsin or Illinois, you notice those dark telephone poles, one by one, lift themselves out of the fence line and slowly leap on the gray sky and pass them the snowy fields. 2. The darkness drifts down like snow on the picked cornfields in Wisconsin and on these black trees scattered one by one through the winter fields. We see stiff weeds and brownish stubble and white snow left now only in the wheel tracks of the combine. 3. It is a pleasure, also, to be driving toward Chicago, near dark, and see the lights in the barns. The bare trees more dignified than ever, like a fierce man on his deathbed, and the ditches along the road half full of a private snow. So again, that was Three Kinds of Pleasures by Robert Bly. Very familiar imagery um, for us, of course, in Wisconsin, but also even just this time of year. Um, we haven't quite had a snow yet, but... Uh, the idea of the image of snow left in the wheel tracks of the combine, um, the imagery of the barns, uh, the winter fields, the brownish stubble is all very familiar to us, uh, the picked cornfields. But the poem is about more than just Midwestern imagery. I'll read it one more time and talk a little bit about how Bly uses imagery to convey emotion. Again, Three Kinds of Pleasures by Robert Bly. One, sometimes riding in a car in Wisconsin or Illinois, you notice those dark telephone poles one by one lift themselves out of the fence line and slowly leap on the gray sky 
and past them the snowy fields. So just to pause after that section, there's and he he lends the world an animate quality, right? So he makes the the telephone poles actually lift themselves out of the fence line. We know that they don't literally do this, but um, there's a sense that one is kind of while driving, the world is kind of coming alive, and inanimate objects have the ability to lift themselves and leap. Um, and actually, it's really interesting the word leap, L-E-A-P, um, in that Robert Bly had a theory that poetry should leap, that there should be um, these leaps and, and jumps within a poem, uh, because he was very interested in kind of breaking down the, the rational use of language um, and basically trying to get us into a place of dream and imagination. And so he had this theory that a poem should leap and jump and surprise the reader. So it's kind of cool to see the word leap in this poem. Um, and it's these dark telephone poles that lift themselves out of the fence line. It's almost like they uh, are kind of kept captive by the fence line, but then there's this moment of revolt where they leap up against uh, the gray sky and beyond them, the snowy fields. Each, each of these sections actually ends with an image of snow. So that just another thing to notice. So then the second section reads, the darkness drifts down like snow on the picked cornfields in Wisconsin and on these black trees scattered one by one through the winter fields. We see stiff weeds and brownish stubble and white snow left now only in the wheel tracks of the combine. So after the first section in which the telephone poles are leaping up out of the fence line, we have darkness drifting down. He uses a metaphor of darkness falling like snow, which is technically a strange metaphor, right? Darkness is dark, <laughs> snow is, is not dark. Um, but the way that darkness is falling, uh, drifting down softly like snow on the picked cornfields in Wisconsin is I think really beautiful. And then he has these black trees scattered through the winter fields. The whole poem is kind of about, I think, this delightful contrast between darkness and light. You know, the dark telephone poles in the gray sky, um, the darkness drifting down like snow, the black trees scattered through the winter fields. Um, there's the brownish stubble, and then there's the white snow left in the wheel tracks of the combine. So he seems to be playing with this idea of that that time in winter when things are kind of binary. They're kind of it's 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 darkness and it's whiteness, um, and that kind of interesting colorlessness of winter um, that can be very startling and uh, beautiful. And those of us from the Midwest, of course, are very familiar with this simplicity that happens in the in the winter time. Um, and of course, we don't want to forget the title of the poem is Three Kinds of Pleasures. So all of these images are bringing the poet pleasure. And as readers, we we too are are, um, are pleased by these images. I think uh, of the simplicity and clarity of of winter time. And then finally, the third section. It is a pleasure also to be driving toward Chicago near dark and see the lights in the barns, the bare trees more dignified than ever, like a fierce man on his deathbed, and the ditches along the road half full of a private snow. So it's a pleasure too to, after all this solitude out in the, out in the fields, to be driving toward a city and to see the lights in the barns, 
And the bare trees, again, another image of kind of um, the stark bare quality of wintertime, are likened to a fierce man on his deathbed. It's really a, a, an amazing simile, I think, um, to liken a tree to a man on his deathbed. And not just a man on his deathbed, but a fierce man. And then one of my favorite images uh, in Bly's work is the ditches along the road half full of a private snow. He could have written, and the ditches along the road half full of snow, and that would have been, I think, an interesting image to conclude with. But the idea of a private snow, private to whom? Is it private to the ditches? Is it private to us, those who, the, to the poet who observes uh, the snow in the ditch? Um, it's it's one of those very uh, strange uses of language that really makes the line pop and makes it memorable in a way that I don't think it would be otherwise. So that was Three Kinds of Pleasure by Robert Bly. Um, I'm going to read another poem now by Bly. I don't even know which poem yet because I love him so much that I just basically pulled the book down from the shelf and um, I'm just going to just going to uh, look through the book and find a poem that I think would be good to hear because you really can't go wrong with Robert Bly. Okay, let's um let's read this poem called an Empty Place, which is uh, another poem that I think is going to be familiar to us in the Midwest, particularly at this time of year. This poem, An Empty Place, reads, The eyes are drawn to the dusty ground and fall. Pieces of crushed oyster shell, like doors into the earth made of mother of pearl, slivers of glass, a white chicken's feather that still seems excited by the warm blood, in a corn cob, all kernels gone, room after room in its endless palace. This is the palace, the place of many mansions, which Christ has gone to prepare for us. So another poem about just kind of a, an ordinary winter scene or late fall scene in that the poet kind of makes magical um, through just, I think, a couple of things. Um, telling us precisely what the poet sees, but also transmuting what they see into something very magical and otherworldly. So um, I'm going to read the poem one more time, but there's a little note that, uh, that Bly includes with the poem that will give us, I think, some context into what he was thinking about when he wrote this. So Bly says, Empty places are white and light-footed. Taking the road means being willing to die, like the pigeon grass clump that dies so quietly. There is a joy in emptiness. One day I saw an empty corn cob on the ground, so beautiful, and where each kernel had been, there was a place to live. <laughs> so that's his note for the poem. It sounds like a poem in and of itself, doesn't it? Um, it's cool that uh, I'm reading from a book of his selected poems, and you can tell he put this together at a moment in his life where he was reflecting upon his work and what it meant to him. And there are some, some of these poems have little prefatory notes in which he describes kind of what was going on for him when he wrote the poem. So um, now I'll read the poem again. Again, it's called An Empty Place by Robert Bly. The eyes are drawn to the dusty ground and fall. Pieces of crushed oyster shell, like doors into the earth made of mother of pearl, slivers of glass, a white chicken's feather that still seems excited by the warm blood, and a corn cob, all kernels gone, 
room after room in its endless palace. This is the palace, the place of many mansions, which Christ has gone to prepare for us. Bly was not necessarily a religious poet, I should say. He he definitely came out of a, you know, um, grew up Christian, but it's it's not so important that he ends the, the poem with the image of Christ um, and the many palaces or the many mansions that Christ has gone to prepare for us in heaven. Um, what's more important, I think, is how he arrives at that image. So he makes this statement that in fall, our eyes are drawn to the dusty ground, and that seems inarguable to me. Um, there's been a clearing away, a kind of maybe in fall, things are more exposed. Um, the grass has died down and things have kind of wilted and there's, there's, it's, it's emptier, but it's in a way that emptiness allows us to see more. I think that's why maybe the poem is called an empty place. There's this amazing image of, uh, an oyster shell that looks like a door in the earth. So you can almost see it as this strange, as he describes it, door made of mother of pearl. Um, so the very first image in the poem is about kind of entering a place um, through kind of entering a place that is impossible for us to enter physically, but via the imagination we can. So um, we have these doors made of mother of pearl. We have the white chicken's feather, um, slivers of glass. And then the central image of the poem is this corn cob. And, you know, we know this image very well. All the kernels have, have disappeared. It's this reddish corn cob. Um, and he thinks about how where each kernel had been, there's a place to live. And so there's almost a feeling of corn cob is almost like a tenement apartment, you know, with all these empty rooms in it. And um, the poem doesn't necessarily mean anything, I don't think. I don't think it, it's not arguing anything in particular. It's just putting us in... Uh, a dream space that is really delightful to live in for a moment. And a lot of Bly's work, I think, is is, is uh, interested in basically taking us out of the ordinary, everyday, rational way that we look at our lives and putting us into a more um, maybe uh, archetypal or mythological connection with ourselves, which is, I think, his great strength as a poet. He was also a very political poet. He wrote many poems against the Vietnam War, was very involved in um, in protesting the Vietnam War. Um, but I'm not going to share any of his anti-war poems today, um, though that was a big part of his career I, I wanted to mention. Okay, I want to read... Um, let's see, I want to read another poem by him called... I'm looking for it here. Reading in Fall Rain. This poem, uh, again, Reading in Fall Rain by Robert Bly. The fields are black once more. The old restlessness is going. I reach out with open arms to pull in the black fields. All morning rain has fallen steadily on the roof. I feel like a butterfly, joyful in its powerful cocoon. I break off reading. One of my bodies is gone. It's outdoors, walking swiftly away in the rain. I get up and look out. Sure enough, I see the rooster lifting his legs high in the wet grass. So this poem is again about kind of leaving oneself, um, having a, an experience of maybe like almost an out-of-body experience, literally an out-of-body experience in this case. But it's via the vehicle of reading and how reading can kind of 
take us out of ourselves or out of our um, present moment. It can put us in the present moment too, but in this instance, I think uh, the poet is kind of lulled to sleep by reading and then um, realizes that some part of himself has has kind of broken off and is is literally, um, as he describes it, walking around outside in the wet grass in the form of this rooster. So I guess this is a, a poem about the poet kind of being transported or being um, transformed um, in a in a in a reflective moment, um, and the po the poem itself is kind of uh, dramatizing that event. So I'll just with that kind of reading in mind, I'll I'll read the poem again. It's called "Reading and Fall Rain." The fields are black once more. The old restlessness is going. I reach out with open arms to pull in the black fields. All morning rain has fallen steadily on the roof. I feel like a butterfly, joyful in its powerful cocoon. I break off reading. One of my bodies is gone. It's outdoors, walking swiftly away in the rain. I get up and look out. Sure enough, I see the rooster lifting his legs high in the wet grass. I really admire how simple, you know, I don't think that simple is, uh, the word simple is not necessarily um, always seen as a positive characteristic, you know, saying that something is simple can have a negative connotation, but I feel like Bly's work is simple and clear in the best way. Um, I feel sometimes like a child could have written Bly's work, and that's, uh, I think, a compliment, really. Um, his work is not fussy or obscure. It is interested in seeing clearly, and so his writing is always, to me, very um, precise, and I always leave a Bly poem feeling like I see the world um, more acutely than I did when I entered the poem. I also enjoy his um, present tense. He often uses the present tense in his poetry, which, as we're reading the poem, puts us right in the time and place that the poet was in when they wrote it. And so there's a way in which there's an immediacy to his work that I think is really impressive as well. And they're, they're quite short, so we can look at more poems than we've normally been looking at in, on Poet's Table. Um, let's just look at another one now. Um, these are all kind of similar. They're all from, uh, the poems I'm reading today are from a book called um, Silence in the Snowy Fields, which is an appropriate title. There's so much snow in these poems, and there's a lot of silence, and there's a lot of solitude. This is another poem that has three sections. Uh, it's called Snowfall in the Afternoon. One, the grass is half covered with snow. It was the sort of snowfall that starts in late afternoon, and now the little houses of the grass are growing dark. Two, if I reached my hands down near the earth, I could take handfuls of darkness. Our darkness was always there, which we never noticed. Three, as the snow grows heavier, the cornstalks fade farther away, and the barn moves nearer to the house. The barn moves all alone in the growing storm. Four, the barn is full of corn and moving toward us now, like a hulk blown toward us in a storm at sea. All the sailors on deck have been blind for many years. It's very strange, right? Um, I think the poem actually has a narrative to it that we can follow. So um, there's a snow that starts in the afternoon. He describes the little houses of the grass, which is a beautiful image, um, which I think we, we know what that means, right? Um, you can imagine like um, clumps of grass in a pasture being sort of like little thatched cottages or something. 
and they're growing darker as the snow falls in the late afternoon. In the second section, the poet reaches down and literally takes or imagines they could take up handfuls of darkness. In the third section, the snow is falling heavier and the barn begins moving, which is not possible, but one could imagine maybe during snowfall, uh, the, the world becoming strange visually. And so the barn moves nearer to the house. It moves all alone in the growing storm. And then finally in the fourth section, the barn is likened to a ship that is being blown. And we get this very weird image of all the sailors on deck who've been blind for many years. So it's a poem about falling snow, falling darkness, blindness, not literal blindness, but a feeling of kind of things are disappearing. Uh, the, the familiar world is, is being altered. Um, and it's given this very simple title, Snowfall in the Afternoon. I feel like this poem, it, it does a wonderful job of replicating the feeling of, of snow falling, this mysterious uh, event that we, I think, have a, an emotional connection to from childhood on. Um, it's not just simply describing the snow falling, but it is likening it to um, a kind of blindness, darkness, um, journey of the, the barn likened to the ship, um, the sailors on deck. I mean, it's really kind of populating this winter scene with all kinds of magical dreamlike language that makes that makes the poem feel as wondrous as a snowfall feels to watch. Um, so I don't know if I'm doing the greatest job describing how the poem is working for me, but I feel like what Bly often will do is take something that we might have over time come to see as ordinary and reinvesting it with magic and wonder. I'm going to just read one last poem by uh, Robert Bly. Um, yeah, and um, this is another poem from the same collection, um, Silence in the Snowy Fields. Maybe we'll read a poem that actually takes place in a different season. This poem is called um, July Morning. The day is awake. The bark calls to the rain still in the cloud. Never forget the lonely taste of the white dew. And woolen-robed drummers call on the naked to dance. All the particles of the body shout together. Sitting on the disc, the morning dove coos a porch, then a cathedral, then the two arms of the cross. He gives the nose, then the head, then the two ears of this rabbit, hopping along the garden, then his death. After that, we will be alone in the deep blue reaches of the river. So that's a strange poem, and it's not as cold as the other poems I've been reading. Um, a summer poem, I guess, um, by, again, Robert Bly, who we've spent some time with this morning. Uh, we're coming to the end of our half hour, so I'll just sum up by saying that um, you've been listening to Poet's Table, which you can only hear on WDRT out of Viroqua, and we were spending time with the great Minnesota poet Robert Bly, um, looking at some poems from his earlier career from a collection again called um, Silence in the Snowy Fields. Robert Bly, one of my very favorite poets, I highly recommend his work and his translations um, of poets like Pablo Neruda, Tomas Tranströmer. But a good place to start would just be with Bly's poems. Um, and maybe just a selected poems would be a good collection to begin with. Um, 
I really appreciated the opportunity to share with you one of my favorite poets today. And I hope that you'll check out the work of Robert Bly and the other poets who I've been sharing on the show. So um, I wish you all a really good weekend. And thank you again for spending some time with me and with poetry this morning. We'll be in touch again next week.